0: My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. Last week we... Introduced our study of the Gospel of John uh, by taking a look at the first 14 verses of this great book. Uh, And this morning we're going to pick up with verse 15. Uh, We're going to be skipping around a little bit today because we do want to look at the person and ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, So we're going to be looking at uh, parts of 15 through 34 in chapter 1. We'll also look at some verses over. In uh, John three twenty-two through 30, all of them having to do with John the Baptist. But let's just start by reading John 1, 15 through 18 to kind of introduce this. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he is before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen god the father but the one but god the one and only who is at the father's side has made him known has made him known one of my son andrew's very first jokes had to do with john the baptist uh, I'll share that with you. Are you ready for it? What do John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Their middle name. I can't figure out if, so, if half of you just didn't get it or it just wasn't funny. Um, it's a three-year-old joke, folks. It's a three-year-old joke. I will tell you that my son grew up to be voted funniest in his class at Columbus High. Uh, so he did improve from there, but uh, that was his first joke, John the Baptist. Uh, we're not going to mess with the middle name today, but I actually do want to suggest that we consider a different last name, a different last And it's not because, by the way, we're free Methodists and don't like Baptists has nothing to do with it. We love, Lord knows we love Baptists. Almost all of us have been Baptists at one time, right? Um, Who hadn't been a Baptist at some point in your life? Uh, We love Baptists, but the reason is this. Um, I think you know that Baptist is not his real last name, right? Uh, It was a name that was given to him over the centuries because of what he did. But I want to suggest that if we really want to capture what John the Baptist did, did, it was more than just baptisms. John came to be a witness. He came to testify to the person of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk to, us, talk to you this morning about John the witness. And John the witness's story begins long before his birth. I'm going to have to pull from some other sources here because John the, John the Gospel John doesn't really go into it. But if we look at Luke and Matthew, we, we learn a good bit about this man called John the Baptist. or We're calling John the Witness. The story actually begins before he's born when his father, Zechariah. Um, Zechariah, his father, and his mother, Elizabeth, were both from the tribe of Levi, which meant that they were from the priestly tribe. And that meant that Zechariah had priestly duties on a rotating basis. Well, one year when Zechariah was performing his priestly duties, an angel appeared to him. Now, we think of this and we think, you know, what, what an incredible thing this must have been. It was no less incredible then. I mean, this is really no different back then than it is today, because for 400 years, there had been no angelic appearance on the earth. And suddenly, there is an angel in the temple before Zechariah. And it wasn't just any old angel, it was the archangel Gabriel. And Luke tells us exactly what Gabriel says. He says this, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah was so overcome by this whole scenario of the, the angel coming and the words that he spoke that, that, that he was in disbelief. And, and because of his disbelief, he was actually struck dumb. He couldn't speak. And he didn't speak until eight days after the baby was born. And so he and Elizabeth take the baby, as all Jews did, to the temple to be presented before the temple and to be formally named. And so when they asked Zechariah, what shall we name the child? He took a piece, he took a slate and he wrote on it the name John. And as soon as he obediently wrote the name John, he regained his voice and he could speak. And so God, God was letting us know before he was even born that this one will be very, very special. He will be very, very special. Now we don't know a whole lot about his childhood and in his middle years, um, but we know that once he became an adult, John began to minister in the desert of Judea, to the desert area of Judea. Matthew tells us that he was something of a wild man. He said he lived in the desert. He dressed in camel hair clothes. Now, how many of you have ever touched a camel? Anybody ever touched a camel? Several years ago, I got to ride a camel with uh, Jay and Dwayne, who are both up here on stage a minute ago. Uh, This is a picture I took of them in Israel, uh, riding a camel. I want you to take special note of Jay, by the way. You may think that he's leaning over to to be seen by the camera. The truth of the matter is, this is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, Um, Jay jumps up on the camel, and as he leaps onto the camel, he gets a cramp in his left leg. And so what he's really doing there is he's trying to get that cramp out of his leg. Uh, I was also, uh, somebody took a picture of myself in Presley Lanier Coiner. Presley weighs about 100 pounds soaking wet. And this camel gets up on his back legs first. And when he gets up, you feel like you're going to fall over. And I'm thinking, I'm about to crush little Presley. Um, but anyway, we got to ride these camels. And I want to tell you that clothing made from the hair of a camel could not have been very luxurious. Uh, It would not have been comfortable at all, but it was the the, the appropriate attire for a prophet. And so by dressing in the clothes of a prophet, John was stating that he understood his role. He had come to be a prophet. It was also a sign of poverty, uh, which John very much embraced. Matthew goes on to tell us that he ate locusts and wild honey. He also tells us that his ministry was primarily one of calling people to repentance and to be baptized, to be baptized. So apparently he was baptizing a whole lot of folks. Because the religious leaders of the day began to get pretty nervous about what was going on. The more they heard about this wild man in the desert and the crowds of people that were coming and being baptized, him the more concerned they became. And so they sent a contingent. Part of that contingent was a group of Pharisees. I don't know if you know a lot about Pharisees, but they were very, very faithful, not only to the word of God, but to the law as a whole, and they were very concerned that everything be done exactly right. So in essence, they're going out to check out this wild man to see if he really is okay. Um, And so they go out to see him. And, and, And let's just read John 1, 19 through 28. Let's just read that account. Beginning in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Finally they asked, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, then why do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy To untie, this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Now, more than likely, the Pharisees had two primary concerns about John's ministry of baptizing. The first one was this: that John was actually doing the baptisms. Now, again, you may have asked the question at some point: when did baptism come into being? I mean, who, where did it get started? You need to know that John did not invent baptism. Baptism had been around for quite a while, for for a long, long time. The Jews believed that when a non-Jewish person, a Gentile, wanted to become a Jew, that they had to be ceremonially washed in order to purify themselves of the defilement of being a part of the world. And and so whenever someone came and said, hey, I want to be a Jew, they said, well, then first you must go wash yourself. But the way they did baptism is the individual washed themselves. But here, John is baptizing them, which causes them to question, under what authority do you have the right to do that? Who gave you the right to do something that even we, the Pharisees, don't have the right to do? Where did you get your authority? That's the first thing they were concerned about. The second thing, and this was without question even more offensive, the second thing is that John is calling Jews to be baptized. They would have said, "What John what in the This is a major faux pas here because the Jews were the chosen people of God. They were the children of Abraham and as descendants of Abraham, they were already clean. They didn't need to be washed. And yet, John the Baptist is saying to everyone who has ears to hear, repent, for the Messiah is at hand. So this is what they're all up in arms about. So they come to him and say, now, who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they pick that name? Because Elijah had been a critical figure in Jewish history. He had essentially just ascended into heaven. Um, He didn't really die, he just went up to heaven, and they believed that he would come back at some point before the last days were to be inaugurated. And so they're saying to John, do you claim that you are Elijah? He says, no, I am not. And then they say, well, then are you the prophet? Moses had uh, said in Deuteronomy that there will be one who comes like me, who will take? Who will lead you and, uh, out of captivity and lead you into the blessings of the Lord. And so that's the prophet they were referring to, is the one that Moses had prophesied. And again, John says, no, I'm not the prophet. But John knew exactly what they were getting at. He knew that what they were really asking him is who has given you the authority to do this? And John's answer to them is this. I am nothing but a voice. I am the voice crying in the wilderness. I am not the message. I am the messenger. My voice is an instrument of God to prepare the one who is coming who has all authority. I have no authority, but I am preparing for the way for the one who comes with all authority. And then he goes on to say, the one who is coming, I am not worthy to untie the strings of his, the thongs of his sandals. Now I will say this, we kind of get that. I mean, we can kind of understand what John is saying when he says that. But I will tell you that the people of, that who first heard that would have really been struck by those words when he says, I'm not worthy to untie the thongs of his sandals. Why? Because in those days, people walked everywhere they went, Very few people rode on animals. They would just walk the the dirt roads from one town to the next. You know who else walked those same roads? All the animals. And they left their waste on the road. So when you walked a long way, you really got your feet filthy. So when you were going to visit somebody else, the first thing you did when you got to their house is that you would take off your sandals. And if there was a servant or a slave... That slave would come and wash your feet because no one else would touch them. And so the slave was the one who would wash your feet. Do you hear what John is saying? Compared to the one who is coming, I am lower than a slave. I am lower than a slave. That was his testimony of Jesus. John also tells him, by the way, that the one who is coming is among you. Now, don't let that confuse you. He's not saying that he's one of them who's gathered there, one of the Pharisees. He's saying the one who is coming is already here. The fact that I'm here preparing the way means that he is already here and he is about to be revealed. He is about to be revealed because that's what God has sent me to do, to give testimony to the Son of God, whoever that be. And that happens on the very next day. Look with me at John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, everything in me he wants to say, behold, because that's how I learned it when I heard it started. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, But the reason I came baptizing with water was that He might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Him. I would not have known Him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is He who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That this is the Son of God. Now, as I was reading that, some of you may have been asking the question, why does John say, I myself did not know him, I would not have known him? If you remember the earlier story, John and Jesus are what? Cousins. They're cousins. And so you ask the question, I mean, do you remember when, uh, when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, when they both had their babies in their wombs? And, and, and when Mary walked in with Jesus in her womb, the baby, John, in Elizabeth's womb, leapt. So there was something going on all the way back to pre-birth. You know they had to grow up together, at least seeing each other occasionally, because that's what cousins do, Right. And so we ask the question, what does John mean when he says, I would not have known him? I did not know him. Well, I want you to think about it for a moment. I don't know about you, but if my cousin came to me and said, I'm the son of God, and I want you to proclaim me and anoint me as the son of God, I would not do that quickly. Quickly. Maybe your cousins are different than mine, but, I, you know, I don't care how good he is. I wouldn't be quick to anoint my cousin the next son, of, of the son of God. But here's what I really think is happening. I, it's not that John did not know Jesus. He, John is definitely not saying, I don't know who Jesus is. Here's what he's saying. God has told me that you will know when you see this sign. The sign will be that a dove will come as a symbol of the Holy Spirit and my spirit will rest on him and stay on him. Then you will know this is the Son of God. What John is saying here is this. Yeah, I knew Jesus a long time ago. But it wasn't until that moment that God revealed Jesus as the Son of God that I knew for sure, yes, this is the Son of God. And I just want to say this morning right there, just to pause for a moment. That is the beginning of salvation for every one of us. It is not ultimately going to church or trying to be good or believing all the right things. We need a personal revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. A personal revelation. That's what John was waiting for. And when Jesus came onto the scene and the Spirit came on him and remained on him, Matthew says there was even a voice from heaven that spoke and said, This is my son. Now John knew for sure. Now John knew that his role had reached its apex and he could declare that Jesus was the son of God. So John was a messenger. But Jesus was the message. Jesus was the message. John has already told us that Jesus is the light. In John 1, 6 through 9, he says, I am not the light, but the light is coming, the true light that will give life to all men. We talked about that last Sunday. We'll talk about it again when Jesus himself declares, I am the light of the world. John says, Jesus is the light John also says that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. In John 1.18, uh, John says, No one has seen God the Father, but the one who is at his right hand, the one and only, has come to make him known. Has come to make him known. We said this last week, but I'll say it again. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. Jesus gives us a concrete picture and a portrait of the person of God. When we see Jesus, we see the heart of the Father. But the most important thing John says to us is this. Jesus has come to be the Lamb of God. When John first gets his revelation, you might have expected that his, his, the, the first things out of his mouth would have been, Jesus, the Son of God or Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ. But his first words are, Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Now every Jew who heard those words would have known exactly what he meant. They would have immediately remembered all the way back to the uh, to the Passover. And of that time when when God was about to do his last great plague on the people of Egypt. And he said, Tonight I will take the firstborn son of all the Egyptians. But for all of you who belong to me, all of you who are children of Abraham, sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it on your doorpost, and I will pass over you, and you will be delivered. They understood that it was the blood of the lamb that saved them. It was the blood of the lamb that protected them from that plague. And it was the lamb that would become the very heart of the sacrificial system. Year after year after year, they would sacrifice lambs to pay, to make an atonement for their sin, to cleanse them of sin. But now when John sees Jesus, he recognizes immediately why Jesus has come. Jesus came not to reign on this world as a great ruler, though even his disciples struggled with that till the very end. Everybody wanted Jesus to be a ruler on this world. And John was telling us at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus did not come to reign on this earth, but to die. To give his life for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has come to take away the sins of the whole world. That's who he was. That's why he came. John also tells us, I believe, it's not spelled out directly, but I believe John also tells us that Jesus has come to usher in the final days, the last days, uh, the the new age, so to speak. Now, why do I say that? For two reasons. First of all, John said earlier that... um, that John, that that in the past, they were under the law of Moses, but now with Jesus, they were under the law of grace and truth, of grace and truth. That speaks of the new covenant. But more importantly, it's because John says, I baptize with water, which is repentance, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what Amos and and many of the Old Testament prophets said? That in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. John is saying the one who is going to release the Holy Spirit. The one who is going to release the Holy Spirit on all who believe is here. He has come. These are the last days. Jesus is here to do what the prophets spoke about long, long ago. And then we ask this question, for whom is it done? We, we, we've seen who Jesus is, why he did it, but now for whom? And in two different places, we see the answer. Uh, first of all, in 1.6, John says, for all who would believe. And then in nine, it says that Jesus came, came to give light to every man, to every man. Beloved, I want you to know that is that is a... That is a powerful, powerful statement that gives us tremendous hope. It says that Jesus did not come for the elite. Jesus did not come for the good. Jesus did not come for the religious. Jesus came for everyone, and that includes you and me. Now, only by believing do we do we make our, do we avail ourselves of that gift, but he came that anyone who believes might have life in him. That's why he came. Now, it's interesting that as Jesus' ministry began to take off, John launched it. Now, John continued to do his work. John continued to preach a message of repentance. But gradually, more and more people began to leave him and go to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can imagine this. If I was a follower of John, we know that John had been in ministry at least one full year before Jesus showed up. And if I had been following John for a year and had been seeing God do all this amazing work through John, it would have been very difficult for me to say, okay, I'm, I'm leaving you and going somewhere else. And, and so the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus began to, uh, to, to debate and talk. Uh, let's just look at that real quickly in John 3, through 30. John three twenty two through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean's countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to them. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits And listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. Now I think you would agree that at every turn in this story, we have been witnesses of the humility of John. John is constantly proclaiming, I am not the one. There is one who is greater. But I want you to see here that here in this story we see his humility on full display. Because now suddenly all of the attention is going from John to Jesus. But listen to his response. First of all he says a man can only receive what has been given him from heaven. Do you understand what he means by that? He's saying I know who I am and I know why I'm here. Can I just tell you that one of the most, one of the things that is most um, destructive and robs us of life that is truly life is living our lives desperately wishing we were someone else. Living our lives wishing that we had that work or this work or that we were doing that thing. And I think John gives us here a beautiful picture of one who says, God, I am content to be who you have made me to be. John was free to do what God sent him to do because John was not trying to be someone else. He knew his role and he knew Jesus' role. And he was comfortable in his own skin. But secondly, he says this, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And I love this part of the story because he draws out of an experience that they all would have understood Weddings were one of the the most uh, uh, joyous occasions in all of Jewish culture. And and it's interesting. Jewish weddings were different from ours in a lot of ways. But one of the main ways is this. Who was the star of the show in a Jewish wedding? Well, let me ask it this way. Who is the star of the show in our weddings? The bride, bride, of course. I mean, all she has to do is walk in and everybody jumps to their feet, right? I mean, the bride is the star of the show. But in a Jewish wedding it's not the bride but the bridegroom. The bride is kept at home in her room until the bridegroom comes with a with all of his friends coming and they come to claim her and then take her away. And so what everybody's waiting for is the arrival of the bridegroom. And there was one special friend of the bridegroom. We would probably it's probably equivalent to our best man today. In the weddings of the Jews, the best man had a very important role. He did not stay with the bridegroom and come with the bridegroom. He stayed with the bride. And he would stay in the room with the bride waiting until the bridegroom came. And apparently in those days, uh, until until she was married off, others were still trying to get her. Because they would come and they would knock on the door. And it was his job to make sure that no one but the bridegroom got the bride. And so he waited and waited and waited until that joyous moment when the knock came and the voice he heard was the voice of the bridegroom. You see, what he's saying is this he says, I love being a friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the star of the show. He is, it's, it's, this day is all about him. My joy is seeing his joy fulfilled. That was his role. The joy of his life was to bring the bridegroom and the bride together. But then he makes this one last statement that encapsulates the whole thing. He says, he must increase while I decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. John knew that Jesus is the light of the world. That brings the light to all men. John understood that Jesus is uh, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the earth. John understood that his role was to come before and then to let Jesus rise even as he disappeared into the background. I I heard a story once of uh, of, 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 of something that actually happened at a performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The... uh, the, uh, uh, Um, The conductor was a guy named Arthur Toscanini. Maybe you've heard of Toscanini. Toscanini was one of the greatest conductors who ever lived. And he led this one, he conducted this one special performance of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was so amazing that when it was done... The, the, the entire theater erupted in applause and continued on and on and on for minutes and minutes, several minutes. People just were, were screaming and yelling and just exploding with joy over the excellence of the performance. They said that Toscanini bowed several times and then he gave, uh, he pointed people to his orchestra. And finally, as the applause began to die, Toscanini walked over to the orchestra And he whispered, but he whispered in a way that everyone in the theater could hear him. And this is what he said. He said, gentlemen, gentlemen, speaking to the musicians, gentlemen, gentlemen, I am nothing. I am nothing. Those who knew him said that was an unbelievable statement because he had one of the greatest egos in all of music. But he said to them, gentlemen, I am nothing. And then he said, gentlemen, gentlemen, you are nothing. Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. That is what John is doing as he prepares the way. He is saying to us, beloved, I am nothing. We are nothing. Jesus is everything. Everything. Jesus is everything. And this is something that we dare not forget. Yes, there is a dying world that desperately is looking for life and looking for the answer. But I want to remind us that, that, that I am not the answer. And you are not the answer. The church is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus must increase that we might decrease I will tell you as a pastor it's something that I have to constantly remember that when I'm here and I'm bringing this word to you my only aim is that you would see Jesus that you would have an encounter with the living God who is the spirit of Jesus Christ it is it is what we must be about as a church that we are telling people about Jesus John's ministry must become our ministry And I'll tell you that one of the things I love most about this story is this picture of us as friends of the bridegroom. Here's here's what I want you to think about for a moment. The people out there in the world who don't yet know him. You know what else they don't yet know? What they don't yet know is that they are a bride. They're a bride. I know this is a little hard for men. Guys, you're going to have to translate this into a different image, but you get the point those who are lost, who desperately want to know that someone loves them passionately, that someone will be the lover of their soul for all eternity. They are bride. We, the, the, the church is the bride of Christ, and there are people out there that don't yet know they're a bride. And part of our role is to help them to understand that they're a bride, that there is someone that loves them deeply and passionately. And it's our role as a bride, as friends of the bridegroom, to help them to understand that that one is Jesus. It's Jesus. And all that we do, he must increase even as we decrease. I want to tell you that I first met Jesus 41 years ago. I was 10 years old. I had heard about him, I had been in church my entire life, Uh, I, I knew all there was to know about Jesus, but it was not until I was 10 that I had my own personal revelation that Jesus is the Christ, and that I am a sinner, and that apart from him, I am nothing, and it was that personal revelation that ushered me into a genuine relationship with God. And I'll tell you, it's interesting that every now and then, this doesn't happen a lot, but every now and then I'll have somebody say to me, you got saved when you were 10 years old. It's like, yep. So does that ever make you mad that some people die on their deathbed at 80 or 90? praying a prayer of, of repentance and that they get in heaven just like you did and, and they got to do their own thing for 80 or 90 years. You got saved when you were 10. You know, and I don't say this out loud, but you know what I want to say? You, can't, you could not ask me that question if you truly knew my Jesus. You can't know my Jesus and think that it would be better to live even one day without him than it is to live a thousand with him. I, I will tell you, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And he gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. I know those are songs but somebody wrote those songs because they knew Jesus. They knew Jesus. I'll tell you, this is my testimony. In 41 years, Jesus has never failed, Jesus has never left me. Jesus has been faithful even when I am not faithful. There are times when, quite frankly, I can get caught up in the work of the church and forget that it's all about Jesus. He's still there, and there will come a point where i stop, and I cease, and I remember it's all about Jesus. Jesus is everything, everything, everything.